Good morning, Christ Covenant. I would like for you, I would like to invite you to take out your copy of God's Word with me. I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11. Um, My name is Lauren Papa, and I'm so glad to be here with you today. Thank you for joining us. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For neither for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, it's great to be with you. Um, Again, as I said earlier, we finish up this series, as Blake and I said, at the beginning of the service on biblical womanhood today. And this has been a great series for us. It's the kind of series that we we really want to do here uh, because it's created a lot of conversation. It's created a lot of conversation in our body. And I think it's helped me as a pastor or other pastors shepherd our body better. Uh, It's helped us to consider one another, men and women in our body, more rightly and more according to God's design. If you remember the first week, I kind of laid out four big goals for this series. First, we wanted to talk about 
biblical womanhood and this essence of biblical femininity, what, what makes women so unique and so special and so great in the eyes of the Lord, how God designed them and, and some, some things that God wants to particularly display through women. Our second big goal in this is to look at passages, just like the passage that we looked at today, that are misunderstood and controversial. Now, we've actually chosen really hard passages uh, passages that um, it's just been interesting is uh, uh, Shannon actually puts together a little study packet uh, for me just to pull some sermons, some things for me to read through as I prepare these sermons. And and a lot of these texts that we've looked at are kind of avoided by a lot of churches. And, and that's one of the reasons that we wanted to dive into them and say, okay, if, if we really believe that the Bible is the word of God, then, then these uh, passages, even though they're kind of hard to understand, we believe they have something to say to us and something very profound to say to us. And, and actually, even as we're going to continue to see today, um, something very good to say to us. The third thing that we've tried to do in this series is with our Rhythms Guide reading. Um, if you're not familiar, we actually have a, a little daily Bible reading plan. You can access this under the resources tab on our webpage. We actually pr print um, this daily Bible reading guide also. But through the Rhythms Guide through the series, we've been reading about three strong women in the scripture uh, that really show us so much of the character of God. In fact, this week, reading through the stories of Esther, I was just so encouraged by who she is really as a messianic figure, as, as, a, as a person in the Bible that really points us to Jesus. And then the fourth goal in this is we've been reading a book in our groups, and I hope many of your groups have been following along. And even if your group isn't following along, um, this is a great little book to grab. It's The Accidental Feminist uh, by Courtney Rezig, and uh, it's just a really good book. It gives a very kind of robust biblical theology of biblical femininity. One little note on that book, and in particular the author, uh, Courtney was just actually diagnosed with ovarian cancer, um, and so I know she would appreciate your prayer, um, but it's a great little tool. So all of this, as I said, has created a, a lot of conversation in our church, a lot of conversation among our members. And uh, I just want to say this is one of the reasons that I'm very grateful for a congregational church and for a plurality of elders. Uh, these passages that we've looked at uh, both contain um, truth that is undying, truth that uh, exists forever, truth that uh, has been in place from the foundation of the world and, and will be in place to the end of this age, but but they also they also have in them, or they're written in a particular cultural context, right? So Paul is writing these things to real people in a real place and time. For example, here to the Corinthian church, and so it's, it's tricky. It's tricky, and the elders and I, and the other pastoral staff and I, we, we really do our best to say, okay, what what is what of this is true forever, and and what of this is kind of cultural in this moment that is pointing to the eternal truth of God. Uh, but may or may not be applicable to our day. And, and I just want to say, like, we're not always going to bat a thousand on this. Um, it's, this, is, this is hard. This is real, genuine, thoughtful Bible study. And again, that's one of the reasons that I'm grateful that, um, you know, we, we have a congregation of people. We have a plurality of leaders in our church that can help us to understand and pursue God's good truth. So... We have a lot to talk about today, but, but I actually want to start here, and I think we have a little picture uh, that's coming up right now. This is my childhood home, 1809 Cross Creek Road. I, I probably could have found a picture of this, but I, I just pulled this one off of Google, and uh, I lived here from the time I was six years old 
into the time I graduated high school. So I, most of my childhood memories happen right here. Isn't that a, it's a great house. Are they looking at it right now? This is a great house. Uh, I love this little house. There was a creek. There was a mountain behind it. But what we had in this house was a turnaround. We had a carport in the back, and there was kind of a turnaround area, and we had a basketball goal. And I've, I've been thinking a lot about that kind of turnaround, concrete turnaround area. It was about the size of like what would be a normal three-point line kind of around a basketball goal. So it was really a great little place to play basketball. And I've been thinking about that a lot because uh, right now on ESPN, hopefully some of y'all have been watching, uh, the Last Dance, uh, which is a documentary about the 1990s Bulls, has been on. I've really, really enjoyed it. Uh, the fourth part is on tonight, and then it kind of ends next week. So uh, hopefully ESPN will, will pay me some uh, plug money there. But, uh, but anyway, um, it's been fun for me to kind of relive the, this documentary because the 90s Bulls, I mean, this was my childhood. Um, basically, you know, during the time I lived in that house, you know, probably from the time I was about 8 to 16 or so is when the Bulls were winning all those championships. And so when I would play basketball by myself in that little concrete turnaround, oftentimes, uh, you know, in that scenario, in my imagination, I was Michael Jordan. I was the one pulling up to hit the game-winning jumper. Uh, now, to, truth be told, a lot of times the, the Marv Albert uh, announcer voice in my head when I would have those imaginary moments would be something like, Jordan pulls up for the game winner. Jordan grabs his own rebound and puts it back and lays it in for the win. I mean, usually I miss the shot. I wasn't very good at basketball, but Jordan was such a hero. He was so great that I, I wasn't alone in this, right? I mean, I, I, was, I was numbered among thousands and thousands of kids all across the country imagining themselves at their own basketball goals on playgrounds everywhere, being Michael Jordan, being like Mike, like the Gatorade commercial, hitting the game-winning jumper. And there's actually something to this that I think really helps us understand this passage here. Um, and so kind of with, with that in mind, I want to look at two things that we see in this passage that, that I, I think that the Lord wants us to see in this passage. And the first is the display of God's glory. And, and the second is the manifestation of man's strength, mankind's strength, the display of God's glory and the manifestation of mankind's strength. So first of all, the display of God's glory. In order to understand this passage, the reason we started up in, in chapter 10 is because to, to anchor these kind of difficult things that we read in chapter 11 rightly, we have to understand what's going on here. We have to understand in general that in all of creation, God's purpose in his creation, God created the whole world to display himself. The way I like to say it is this, God created the world to describe his glory. How is God going to describe his glory? He's not just going to tell us things. He's going to show us things. He's going to show off his glory in his creation. So how can we understand how big God is, right? How can we understand how measureless God is? Well, God created a literally measureless universe that is ever expanding, that we cannot measure. There are guesses at how big the universe is, but that's all they are. They're guesses. And every time that we've kind of guessed how big the world is, we get to the end of that, and then we realize there's so much universe beyond all of that. And that's one of the things, one of the little things that God put in place to just say, this is how I am. I am measureless. You, you cannot contain me. You, you, just when you think you can get your hands around me, I get so much bigger than that. 
God displays his complexity in things like the central nervous system. I was thinking about the central nervous system uh, this week and how and just amazing we are made and how we can feel and how we can touch and how we can perceive. I mean, the human brain has 86 billion neurons, 86 billion neurons that are always working in coordination with one another. Even right now, as you are sitting there listening to this sermon, as I am preaching this sermon, there are 86 billion neurons at work in my mind to make all of this happen. What complexity. And, and all of this says something. It is display, it's describing God's glory. It is describing something of the very nature of God. And so that's kind of how Paul ends chapter 10. He's saying this. Look, what, what are you, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever, you, you've got to keep in mind that your purpose, the reason God created you, the reason God put you together and everything else in all of creation, the reason he put all these things together is actually to display his glory. And you are either finding yourself in the narrative of God, where we're bringing God glory, where we're finding his order, or you're finding yourself somewhere else. You can either direct this glory that God intended for you to direct back to him, or you can take his order, take his creation and direct it toward yourself, direct it toward something else. Yeah, we have a little sermon writing meeting every week, and, and Lou Priolo said something I thought was really profound this week. Uh, he said, what's the opposite of glorifying God? And then he answered his own question. He said, I think it's to embarrass God. What's the opposite of glorifying God? It's, it's to embarrass God. And I've been thinking about that this week, particularly as it applies to, to myself and to parenting. You know, you know when my kids glorify me, you know when my kids please me, they bring me the most joy. Um, and I just kind of categorize this in three ways. First of all, it's when they, they trust me and obey me, right? When I, I tell them, hey, this is the way it is, and this is what you need to do, and they obey it. I mean, when they do that, I, I am so pleased. It brings me such joy. They listen to me. They trust in me. Secondly, it's when they love the things that I love, right? When, when I am interested in something and my kids are also interested in it, you know, when, when I hear, you know, John Kellis say that Auburn is the greatest football team ever, that there is something in that that just wells up inside of me. I take great joy in that. Why? Because he's loving what I'm loving. And then the third thing that, that really gets me going, that, that really makes me feel honored, if you will, that, that really delights my heart uh, with my children is when they imitate me, when they want to do what I do, when they're trying to be like me. And, and here's the deal. It, it's the same thing with, with God. When, when we trust God and obey God, when we delight in the kinds of things that God delights in, when we imitate God, we bring great glory to him. But the same thing with my kids, when they disobey me, when, they, when they're not interested in what I'm interested in, when you know, they, they imitate someone else, it either hurts me or in, in, in some cases, particularly when they disobey me and don't trust me, it actually embarrasses me. And it's the same thing with the Lord. When, when we don't trust the Lord, when we don't delight in what he delights in, when we follow a different way, and, and that's what's anchoring this whole passage. Look how Paul begins now chapter 11. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Godly imitation, God's glory. That is what is at stake here. And look, we, we can imitate Christ in so many different ways. We can imitate him with our behavior. We can obey God as he obeyed God. We can imitate him with our words. But we can also imitate Jesus, and I want you to hear this, in the way that we understand the order and design of God. 
As we understand the order and design of God, as he did, we imitate him. And so Paul is going from this. So you have to frame this in imitation, God's glory. And now let me give you some instruction. He is going from there to verse three, where he says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now, this is an incredibly insightful passage, but you have to understand, you got to get inside Paul's head a little bit here. Paul has this high view of what marriage, what man and woman together in marriage is supposed to demonstrate. And Paul has this view that's coming from the Lord. It's coming from our own Lord Jesus. In, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is teaching on divorce and on marriage, and he's describing to his disciples really what marriage is all about. And he says in Matthew 19, 5 and 6, a man shall leave, he's just re- repeating the creation ordinance here, but he says, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then he goes on to describe to his disciples what this really means and how sacred this union is and how it should not be separated, no matter what. And you know what the disciples say? You know how they respond? They say, who then can be married? (laughs) Who then can live this way? Who can hold up to this? Well, in, in Paul's mind here, and of course, I think in the mind of our Lord, this is so important. There are two main reasons that are anchoring this. And it's because the marriage union between husband and a wife are created by God. Remember, everything that God has created is describing his glory. And so the the union between man and wife are created, one, to describe the nature of Christ and his relationship with the church, the nature of the gospel, the nature of the union that we have with Christ and with God through faith in Christ. And two... The, 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 the nature of unity between man and woman is, um, okay, I'm just going to keep going here. Thanks, Propez. Um, the nature of unity between the man and the woman is reflective of the Godhead. It's reflective, actually, of the kind of relationship that Jesus, the Father, and the Son have with one another. There, there are a lot of Trinitarian kind of analogies that people will give. So when people try to describe the Trinity, how is God three in one? People will say things like, well, it's, it's like water, ice, and gas, right? That's how you can understand the Trinity. But that's, that's not a, an accurate analogy for what the Trinity is like. There you have one kind of substance that is appearing in three different modes, right? Or or some people will say like, well, I'm Jason, the pastor, I'm Jason, the husband, and I'm Jason, the father. Again, it's one person serving in three different roles. That's not what the Trinity is. That's not how we understand who our Godhead is. What we see in the Trinity is actually three persons, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are separate persons, yet they are all God, okay? And the the only real analogy that I think we have that we can kind of see in front of us to understand this is marriage. This, This is why this is so important. You have a man and a woman, husband and wife, two individual persons, right? Equal in essence, totally equal in essence, both made in the image of God, for one another, loving one another, honoring one another with different roles in this union. And that's exactly what we see in the Godhead. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, different persons, but for one another, glorifying one another, honoring one another, but understanding that each of them have different roles. And Jesus so honors this institution, and Paul so honors this institution, because so much is on the line. You see, marriage, the union between a man and a woman, is an imitation of God. And you have so much capacity in your marriages to either bring great glory to God or great embarrassment to God. Now, for a lot of us, and I'll be honest here, for me, my marriage oftentimes looks like me trying to imitate Michael Jordan in the turnaround, where I miss the first shot, sometimes the second shot, and just have to lay it in at the end. But, but what I'm called to in this, if I'm humble before God, if I seek to glorify God, if I understand his design, what, what I can have with Paige and what she can have with me is something that is actually reflective of the very nature of God. There is so much capacity in your marriage to either glorify God or to embarrass God. Now, now from here, though, Paul goes into this whole kind of section about head coverings. Now, a man shouldn't cover his head. A woman should cover her head. And there's a lot of debate about this. I want to just say I looked at a lot of different commentators this week, and, and a lot of people say a lot of different things about what Paul's talking about here, about what this means. Um, some believe that there, so there was pagan worship going on at the time. We don't even know if this was a practice in Corinth. It was a practice we do know in other parts of the Roman world. So it was probably a practice in Corinth. Corinth, where men would cover their head in prayer and in worship. And so some people say that Paul is kind of creating a delineation between these two. Uh, some commentators talked about how, you know, any sort of a covering was just a, a sign of, it wasn't a sign of freedom, it was a, it was a sign of uh, humility. And so Paul is saying, look, men should in strength and in confidence in God, remove head coverings and be free. Yet, yet women desiring to be submissive to their husbands should, should wear one. I just want to say, this is a really good time, I think, for us to talk about uh, something that's really going to be important for you as you seek to understand God's Word, and that is this idea of hermeneutics. Um, hermeneutics is a branch of biblical study that is concerned with kind of how you study the Bible, how you interpret the Bible. And there's a lot of hermeneutical principles um, that I could give you. I don't have a time to really get into this today, but just how we understand the Bible, how we read the Bible, how we get the most of God's word out of um, the Bible. But one principle that's going to be very important for your Bible study is to move from clarity to ambiguity, right? So there, there are parts of the Bible that aren't very clear, that, that, that we don't really understand. This is obviously one of those. Um, the Bible is not about head coverings, right? That's not a major theme of the Bible. In fact, this is kind of the place that it talks about these things. So, uh, but, but something that is very true in the Bible, something that is very thematic, all the way from the, really the beginning of the end to the end of the Bible is this idea of God's order, right? So I think what we should read in this, let's, let's not be distracted by the head covering language. And let's dive into really what is... Paul commending here to the Corinthian church? What, what is he trying to say here to the Corinthian church that's consistent with what he says and what, with what other biblical authors say throughout the entire Bible? And, and, and something that we, we see, again, over and over in Scripture is that there is an ordering between husbands and wives that is reflective of God himself. And of course, we see this throughout this passage. Look at verse 7 uh, and beyond with me. It says, for a man not ought to cover his head, 
since he is the image and the glory of God. Again, this is concerned with imaging God, displaying God, describing God's glory. But a woman is the glory of man. So there is something in this, again, that is reflective, that, 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 that brings glory to the man and ultimately to God. For man was not made from the woman, but the woman from a man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And in verse 10, I think this is really, really helpful. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, there's a lot in this verse, and and I want to dive into it with you, but I think it's a really, really helpful verse. So what was happening in Corinth and and really in Christianity uh, throughout the Roman world in this kind of first century time is that really for the first time ever, women actually, in the context of the church, their gifts were being encouraged. They were being taught the scriptures in a way, particularly in Jewish culture, that they never really had before. They were uh, taking part in worship in a way that they never really had before. So we see women praying in worship, right? There's instructions in our Bible about how women should do this. There's women speaking in certain contexts within the services. Now, as I explained a couple of weeks ago, kind of the office of, um, I use this idea of a measuring rod, the, the, the office of elder or pastor that's guarding the truth of a congregation was reserved for men. But in, in terms of congregational worship, in terms of how women were using their gifts, it was, it was really on display like it never had been before. But in this context, with, with women using their gifts, what, what we were seeing here, again, as I said a few weeks ago, men are oftentimes prone to passivity, is, is women um, f- entering into or creating for themselves or having a spiritual identity that was distant from their husband's spiritual identity. And so what Paul is really urging here is, look, women, use your gifts in, in the context of a local church. God has gifted you. God desires that your gifts would be used for the benefit of the body. However, we don't want to, in that context, break down this this amazing thing that God wants to display with you and your relationship with your husband. In no way should Christian worship or your roles within the context of the local church break up or divide what God desires to do within the Christian home. And that's incredibly important. And and there's this whole little squirrely part at the end here where he talks about the angels. And again, this is another one where commentators go crazy and go all over the place. But the, the thing that I think is happening here, and again, I don't even, this could be wrong because many commentators didn't mention this, but I think what's happening here is it's a reference to the angels peering in on our worship. I think what he's saying is, remember, your worship is important, right? The angels are watching. Even the angels are watching and delighting in your worship. And so make sure that everything in your worship is orderly. You're you're not dividing the institution of marriage that God so treasures and delights in. Remember, the angels are watching. Remember, God is on display. And so what I think Paul is saying here is this one flesh union between the husband and the wife that has so much power to reflect Christ in the church, that has so much power to reflect the very ontology of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and how they relate to one another. Make sure in your worship, as you're using your gifts, that that is also on display. Make sure in your worship that wives and husbands, you are relating to one another rightly so that the, the health of your marriage, the health of your union is on display as you use your gifts 
to serve the body. Now, I think it's a good question then to say, okay, what does this mean? What does this look like? What are some practical takeaways here? And just a couple really quick. Um, I want to give some practical takeaways for, for married women and for single women. So for married women, as you're using your gifts, as you're serving the body that God has called you to be a part of, always, and this is true of any context of life, always speak well of your husbands. I think one way, ladies, one of the best ways you can honor your husband and God's what God is calling him to be is to speak well of him. Speak well of him when you talk to your friends, when you talk to your family. And then another thing, speak well of him to him. Um, you know, there's a famous book, Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages, and it goes through all these love languages. I don't know a man that doesn't desire what Chapman calls words of affirmation, right? I don't know a man that doesn't want his wife to affirm him. And, and if you desire your husband to be a spiritual leader in the church and in the home, which you should desire, affirm him, speak well of him, give him the strength of an honoring word. Uh, remember, he is called to be your head. And so honor him as such. Speak well of him. Two, and this is obviously similar, don't put your husband down. If, if you want to kill your husband's courage, speak down to him. Speak ill of him. Um, and I just want to say, you know, ladies, this is a great temptation, right? If you've been hurt by your husband in some way, if he hasn't fulfilled an expectation that you have, it's easy to speak poorly of him. But this does not serve you. And this does not serve you publicly. You know, if ever I see a woman speaking ill of her husband, I, I, it is so, uh, in, in no way is she showing poise or strength in that uh, scenario. In fact, it's just a display of weakness. Um, and, and it doesn't help in any way your relationship with your husband. Don't, don't slam him. Don't put him down. Now, do men need to be corrected? Yes, of course. I need correction all the time. I am regularly corrected by my wife. And I think this is God's grace. There is a sanctifying agent of marriage. The husband and the wife can help one another grow. But do this in a way that honors him. Don't do this publicly. Don't smear his name. Remember, you are a part of him. You are one flesh, one body with him. And so to smear his name is really only to smear your name. And then third, encourage your husband to lead spiritually. You know, Lou Priolo has written a lot on this, but there's many things you can do here. Everything from just, in, but, but I think the posture of what Lou has written, and I really affirm uh, just his work on this to you, is just to invite your husband in. If, if you want your husband to read more scripture, invite him to read scripture with you. You know, he, he should be leading you in this. He should be inviting you. He should be inviting you into prayer. But, but if he's not, Rather than slam him or put him down, in, invite him into good behavior. Invite him into prayer. Invite him into scripture reading. Invite him to memorize scripture reading uh, or scripture with you. If he isn't leading you spiritually, invite him into these behaviors. Now, again, I know and I've heard from some of you single ladies, man, there's a lot in here about married uh, women and um, about men and women. You know, I was kind of hoping more for about singleness. And, and you know, the truth is, is in so many ways, we, we probably need to do a whole other sermon series where we really just focus on uh, what the Bible has to say to singleness. But a lot of these texts that we've chosen, as, as you've read them, they're, they're written within the context of husbands and wives. So again, I haven't wanted to break away too far from these passages. It was a very kind of marriage-centric uh, society that 
was being written to. There was an expectation that that women were really either living in their parents' house or living with their husband. There wasn't this idea of kind of single adulthood that we have today. And, and I do want to clarify, if you're a single lady listening, there is a sense where you're, you're still under your father's authority. This is why when women get married, their father gives them away. That's a, a symbol of um, being under your father's authority until you're given to the authority of your husband. But of course, practically, many of you ladies may be out there and you're like, my father lives a thousand miles away and I've been earning my own salary and living on my own for all of this time. So what does this have to say to me? Well, first, let me say this. First, I think that it is good for you, even as a single person, to to be thinking about marriage to be thinking about who you might be as a married lady. Now, I, I know that not every one of you will marry, and that's okay, um, but, but most of you likely will. And I just want to say, single men and women, you, you should be thinking ahead about marriage. Be thinking about who you're going to be as a wife. Be thinking about who you desire as a husband. Now, this is an incredibly important thing to be thinking through. Uh, you know, if, if only... If God truly is calling you to submit to your husband someday and to honor him as the head of your home, well, that's going to really inform who you're dating, right? You're not going to date a guy that you can't follow, that you can't honor in this way. So you should be thinking about these things. It is very informative to you in terms of just preparing your heart and your life for this beautiful institution of marriage. But, but secondly, and I think this is true, this is something we can all take away from this passage, even men and women, is seek meekness. Seek meekness. And here's what meekness is. It's being strong. It's having gifts, but not having to flex all the time, right? Not having to just show off your gifts all the time. Seek meekness. And I think, I think everyone in the Christian life is called to this. Uh, but this may be something that is particularly important for you ladies to learn. Because, of course, I, I want you to display your gifts. I want you to have these gifts. I want you to pursue the gifts that God is giving you and to use those to serve the context. But it actually requires some meekness to be a good and faithful wife, to not always have to flex and show that you're necessarily stronger than your husband or you're smarter than your husband in this way, even though you may be. Uh, A man is called to lead not based on his uh, particular giftedness. You may be smarter and wiser in him. You're actually called to push him, even in those cases, toward leadership. And that's going to require an incredible amount of wisdom and humility and meekness, the ability to have strength, but not have to show it off all the time. As we said last week, to have this gentle and quiet spirit. It's not a gentle and quiet personality. It's a gentle and quiet spirit to truly hope in the Lord, to not have to be flexing all the time, but to realize that you can have strengths that sometimes you're going to need to use, but you don't have to use them all the time. You're not finding your identity in those things. You're finding your identity and your hope in the Lord. Now, again, some of you might be thinking, hold on, this sermon was titled Strength, Womanhood Strength. You're talking about meekness, you're talking about displaying things. When are we going to get to the the strength part? Well, in one sense, I think we've been talking about what true strength is the entire time, but but I'm glad you asked because I I want to move now to our second point, 
which is man's manifestation of strength or how humanity really displays strength. Now, verse 8 through 12 here is really fascinating. Let me read just a couple of passages here. Verse 8, it says, For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Now, this is a reference in verse 8 to the creation narrative, to God taking one of Adam's ribs and forming the woman, forming Eve. But look at verse 11. This is so interesting how he kind of turns it. He says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Here's God's design. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all these things are from God. Now, now all of this kind of language here, this is hard for us to hear in kind of our cultural, current cultural moment. We live in a very individualistic society, right, where, where your rank, your achievement, your um, your position in the world is, is determined by your individual career success, by your personal notoriety, um, by the amount of money you have, by your ability to not look like an idiot, but to look really good. That's how we rank ourselves. That's how we find our position in culture, individual achievement, individual notoriety. But, but in this context, and in really in most of human history, the world was not so individual. They were community or people-oriented. They, they found their place. They found their identity in life because of the people that they were a part of. They actually wanted to serve the, the community as a whole rather than just their own individual rank within that community. I keep bringing up the, the Last Dance documentary, but I, I've been thinking about this and just in terms of why the, the 90s Bulls were such a great team uh, you know, is because not everyone was Michael Jordan. I mean, you had you know, kind of the alpha dog. But all these other guys, they weren't in competition with him. They, they, they were able to realize, I'm on this team. I have a place to play. I have a, a, a role to play. And in this role, all of us can really rise. Uh, and in the early years, before the Bulls started winning the championships, it was, it was too much on Jordan. People couldn't find their place uh, in this context. It's when they became a team. It's, it's when they realized we, we all have a role to play here, that the, the whole community was lifted up. The whole community was stronger. And, 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 and how this kind of plays out in our current cultural moment, I think it's really important. There's a lot of schools of thought on the roles of men and women, kind of societal formational uh, kind of models here. One, of course, is patriarchy, patriarchal society, where the men are the ruling class. Again, a lot of times Christianity is kind of, conf- uh, is kind of accused of being a patriarchal kind of culture. It is not. And of course, I think we see this in these passages here. Uh, another model is a matriarchal society where you, the women are really the ruling class. And actually, there have been um, a couple of instances, several instances throughout the history of the world where you have a true matriarchal world, a matriarchal society where the, the strong person, if you will, the strong uh, gender in a particular context are, are the women. And in both of these cases uh, throughout church history, whenever you see a patriarchal society or even a matriarchal society, there are a lot of problems that go along with that. Now, today, most people understand, understand the world as an egalitarian society where men and women are equal, where their roles are not determined by their gender or sex, but rather by their talent or ability. And I just want to say, that an egalitarian world, a true egalitarian world, I want you to hear this, ladies, is very hard 
for ladies. There is an expectation on, on so many women right now that is incredibly crushing. It's incredibly difficult. In an egalitarian society, so oftentimes women, you are expected to be the earner of the family, right? You're, you're expected to pull your weight. In fact, I hear people using that language. She needs to pull her weight too in terms of income and uh, earning capacity. But on top of that, there's also an expectation for you to still be the super mom, for you to still be the super wife, for you to still take care of the household in this super way. And, and, and I just want to say the expectation on so many ladies these days is unmanageable. It's impossible. It's crushing. In fact, just this week, there was an article in the New York Times um, that was titled, here, just the title said this, is that nearly half of men say they do most of the homeschooling. 3% of women agree, right? Nearly half of men say they do most of the homeschooling. Obviously, everybody's home now, and so kids aren't in school, but only 3% of women agree. And then the article says this. Here's one little example. It says, in Justin Levinson's household, and this is so indicative, in Justin Levinson's household in Queens, the division of labor hasn't changed much, even though the public library where he works is closed, right? So this guy's not going to work. His wife is an attorney and is working full-time from home. There's more to be done. They no longer have their babysitter, their house cleaner, and yet their youngest son, uh, and their youngest son needs special education from home. But she still does more of it. They both said. Mr. Levinson is candid about his share of the work. To be honest, it's still less than 50%, he said, even though this guy is not working and she is working full-time. It actually hasn't changed that much. Their sons who are 10 and 14 still ask their mother for homework help, even though she's the one working. Also from the article, Barbara Reisman, a professor at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and part of a group of sociologists who analyzed this data said, being forced to be at home is amplifying the differences that we already know exist. Now, why does it exist, right? Does it exist because we are breaking free still of a patriarchal past and haven't fully achieved a pure egalitarian nature? Maybe, okay, I'll give you that. Maybe that's why. But probably, or but more probably, it is because there are actual differences between men and women. And again, again, don't get me wrong. I think we see in scripture, women working outside of the home. This is honored, particularly in Proverbs 31. It's a great place to look. Um, but there are things, particularly in parenting and the nurturing aspect and the homemaking aspect that God has given to women that they're just better at, that they just can do. And so what Paul is describing here is really helpful because it's, it's not patriarchy. It's not matriarchy. It's not egalitarian even. No, he stresses that men and women are actually dependent on one another, but in different ways. They're dependent on one another, but in different ways. God made the woman from Adam, but every man comes from a woman. And we call this kind of thinking complementarianism. I love this idea. Because like egalitarianism, complementarianism recognizes that men and women are of equal value. They're equal in essence in the eyes of God. 
And like matriarchy or patriarchy, it recognizes that there are differences between men and women, that men and women are not the same. And that's great. That's actually by design. Even though they are equal, even though men and women are both made in the image of God, God intentionally made us different. Why? And here's why. Because there's strength in this. There's strength in this. There is strength when you can have a team where people play different roles, but understand those roles, where they're not competing against each other. They're not vying uh, for a certain position, but where there's respect and honor and love in, in, in a set of different roles. This is a team. You know, I, I, Paige and I talk about this all the time. You know, I am so grateful for her. We are such a team together. And look, here's the deal. I am, as I am called to protect and honor and lead Paige, in no way does that put her down. In, in no way does that make her less capable. In fact, I, I would say, and this is by God's grace, that it actually propels her to greater effectiveness. It actually propels her to be a greater leader. And as she is, honors me and loves me and cares for me in a way that really only a wife and a mother of our children can, you know what it does for me? It propels me. And so both of us as a team are rising together. There is strength in God's design. And I want you to hear this, that is reflective of him. Now, again, Paige and I have a long way to go, and, and I only say this because God has been kind and gracious to us, but, but this is what God is calling us to, and this is what God is calling you to. I want you to hear this. This is what God is calling you to, complementary nature, where you realize we're different, but we each have an important role, and as we are together in this, the whole team will rise. Yeah, I was thinking this week about Esther. Esther, it, it, it is such a, it's such a beautiful picture of Christ. This, this woman who, like Jesus, puts her life on the line to save her people. And we honor Esther. I mean, I so enjoyed reading it this week because in Esther, I saw Jesus. This woman who's willing to go before the authorities, before this great potential punishment, to, willing to, to sacrifice herself in order to save her people. And, and through that work, her people are saved, and it is this glorious salvation. It's just like Jesus, who went before his father, who went before his father's judgment against our sin, who put his life on the line in order to save his people, in order to save us. In Esther, we see this picture of Jesus, and it's glorious, and it's good. And I just want to say to you women as we close, that's what God is calling for you, to, to, to actually be an image of Jesus in the way that Jesus submits to his father's will, even though he's equal in essence, and the way that he humbles himself before uh, is what his father desires of him, there is glory in that. And God is calling you to image Christ, to image Christ to your husband and to your children and to everyone who will see you. Don't you see? There's glory at stake in this. God has created all things, including marriage, including the differences between men and women, to describe himself and to describe his glory. Let's be found in his way. Let's honor him and trust him. And let's love what he loves. Let's imitate him and bring him glory. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you so much. I am so grateful for these instructive words, even though they're tricky, uh, even though uh, these things uh, require a lot of thought. 
I'm grateful for a congregation that's willing to think and that's willing to engage in conversation, willing to challenge one another. But Father, I pray for my church right now. I pray for my life and for our church that we would be the kind of church where Jesus is clearly displayed. Not a church that takes his glory and points it toward ourselves, that embarrasses him in any way. I pray for particularly the wives out there. They would be the kind of wives that realize that marriage is primarily not about them, but it's primarily about you receiving glory through them. Pray for the husbands out there, Lord, that they would realize the same thing. This, this institution is not about them. In fact, their role of sacrificial leader is incredibly hard. Their role in modeling Christ is, <laughs> um, is painful and tough requires grit and deep obedience. I pray they'd be faithful in that. Pray for the mothers, Lord, out there today that are seeking to raise children, uh, to love and honor the Lord, to follow his way. I pray that you would give them great wisdom and patience and compassion in this, this most selfless of roles. Father, pray for the fathers and pray for these children, Lord. I pray they would just grow to love Christ. And the Father, in all of this, um, we would see you. We would see you rightly. We would see your glory on display. And we would find ourselves in, in your story, Lord, in your narrative, in your truth. And so, Father, I pray all this in the strong and good name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, as we close, I just want to invite you. We're going to sing a few songs together, but I do want to invite you um, just to connect with me or to connect with one of our pastors. Some of you ladies, you may want to actually talk to another lady in our congregation. We would love that. In fact, you just heard from Lauren, you just heard from Shannon, or you'll hear from Shannon Smith here in a little bit. They're both here. They would love the opportunity to connect with you if you'd rather talk to a lady about some of these things. We would love that opportunity. So please, I encourage you to text a pastor, to use that text to pastor line 678-951-9041, or you can fill out a connect card at the bottom of the YouTube um, uh, screen there. We also just, if you're a visitor with us, we'd love to connect with you in that way. But let's all respond to this now as uh, Jordan and his team lead us. And let's respond in worship to the word of God as it's been revealed. <laughs>